0: Thank you for listening to the Cross Loganville podcast as we continue in our series 29, the book of Acts. This, I'll be honest, has been a weird one for me to prepare for. Um, I had a lot of direction. I knew where I wanted to go. Um, And then this morning, the Lord convicted me to tell you a story uh, that I've told to people in private, but never, certainly not on a stage. Um, And it would be my most shameful moment of ministry. So let's start on an uplifting note, shall we? Okay. The job of worship pastor or worship leader is simple. (laughs) We want to invite you into the presence of God. We want you to know God, not because of how good we sing something or anything. We just want to say, we're going to love on the Lord. Come with us. And hopefully God shows up which if we're totally honest, can be scary when God shows up. In fact, biblically, mostly scary. In our world now, we look at God showing up and we go, this will be great, everything's gonna be awesome, but generally with the holiness of God comes conviction and other things, which is hard for us to handle. So at a previous church where I was employed, um, this was like 20 years ago, it's just crazy. I was thinking about that. Um, my service, which is, ran very similarly to this was a very smart of a very small part, um, which is how you abbreviate small part smart. Just kidding. I just did that by accident. <laughs> um, the, um, it was a very small part of this huge church, 9,000 members, 500 people in my service. Okay. And, um, the pastor and I got along well, he didn't really understand what we did, but he thought it was important. It was a high traditional robes, pipes, you know, choir, and we're rocking and rolling, right? He never came into my service. He just wasn't there, he was working, right? We were doing it at the same time. And this one Sunday morning, I come out, I'd been doing, it was my full-time job probably for a couple of years at this point, point. and I came out and I walked up to the microphone and I clearly saw him in the second to the back row in the middle, and I went, hmm. That's strange. He's never in here. And I said, welcome. That's it. And if you're looking for formulas on how to get the Holy Spirit to interact with your service, that's it. Because I said welcome, and I felt the weight of God pressing on my shoulders like I had never felt it before. And I was like, but he's here. If this goes crazy, I could lose my job. I mean, honestly, I had my service had been threatened a couple of times when money got thin we're going to have to yank this thing this was my stability it's what i knew and god was going we're going to blow this thing up you ready <laughs> and i shook it off out of fear out of keeping that status quo out of saying like if you know it'll be fine it'll be fine And then saying in guilt and just thought, what would have happened if you would have just let it roll and said, God, you're in control. You got it. And so I come out of that service. And what was amazing is I had all these people come up to me and goes, what the heck just happened? That was the most amazing service. All this stuff. You know who everyone participated in it, except for me. I excommunicated my, myself out of it. God, at that moment, decided, I'm not going to force you. It's your choice whether you step into this or not. It's hard. It struck me with a lot of guilt in those moments of, like, what would I have done? Like, clearly I'm unqualified. You should strike me dead. I don't know. I'll go be do some other job, Right. And the Lord is tender and says, that's not what we're doing here. I remember calling a good friend of mine and talking it through with him. And he's like, did you ask for forgiveness? I said, yeah. And he's like, and you haven't been struck dead as far as I know. And he said, then move along. You're forgiven. Move along. But the the message was clear to me. He's going to do what he wants to do. You want to go? You want to be part of it? You want to be part of what God is doing? Because guess what? That's the winning team. And so we can stand in and be afraid and protect and say, but that feels outside of my plan, God. What if I get thrown out of this joint? Because in that moment, it was hard for me to remember that he was better. And so this morning, as I sat in the front row and the Lord says, hey, go share that story when you jacked it up. You go, Yes, sir. Because God, I want to know you in this moment right here. And I can tell you, he's shifting a lot of these thoughts in my mind. So who knows where we're going? But I'm telling you this. We're going to start and we're going to say, God is in control. Okay? And I don't mean that as some phrase that makes you feel better. I mean it as fact. Because sometimes it feels out of control. And sometimes you don't see the plan. And it makes it much harder to be like, I trust you, God. But this feels scary. And the results might not look the same, and I not, might not be able to see years down the line like you can on what the aftermath of all this is, but you're working it out for you. God is in control. See, we're, a, we're born very selfish, and a lot of us, honestly, God meets us in our selfishness initially, and says, you want to live forever in, in heaven? And that, yeah, I want to right? But it's hard because it's not about us. It's his story. He's telling it. He's writing it. He's allowing us to be part of it. And so inside of our selfishness, we read something like Romans 8, 28 and say, we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. And we say, well, I love him. So he's working out everything for my good. And we just stop reading right there because it gets more complicated after that. So it's easy to say, God, just make everything great after that for those who love him it says to those who are called according to his purpose so while he's getting things done and you're participating he's going to help you accomplish those things make those things work out not necessarily have you buy the giant house that you want to buy it's easy for us to get wrapped up in our own thoughts because we live there so often This is why in Proverbs it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Because if you don't see this life in the perspective of God is in control, he is sovereign and in all his majesty and might, he will do as he pleases. You're missing it and you're seeing it way too small if you want to live a life of, of purpose in a life that matters and a life that has impact impacted the kingdom, understand that God is in control. And even when you don't get it, He's still in control. And allow Him, in your response to Him, this feels like the rap, this is the beginning, allow you, <laughs> as you respond to the affection of Jesus, not just to put disciplines in your life to not sin anymore, and that is important, but allow Him to transform how you see the world so that as deep struggles come to your life, you can say, I don't even get it. But my understanding God is that you're in control. So I'm going to follow you. This is to see the world as it is, that he's the one holding the universe in his hand and spinning it he is the one that looks upon all these things and hearts, his heart breaks for us. He longs for us, but he is in control. And as we continue to open our eyes wide to who he is, it begins to shape our reactions to the world around us. This has been the theme of my 30s and still early, early 40s. <laughs> is how did you react to that? Is that a godly? When something surprises me, Good or bad, and I'm thinking about that as I'm in the car for six hours yesterday, and this car is zooming up behind us and has to slam on the brakes and pull into the side before it hits a car full of my family. And honestly, my thoughts were not very Christian at that time. And God, God is like, what are you speak about tomorrow? Remember that? We're growing up. We're allowing Him to grow us up. We must see the world as it is that he is in control. Let me give you a quick example. So my family and I, we just get by, we got back from out of town. We had a wonderful time. Um, every morning, about 6 a.m., we we're with a bunch of Lisa's family. Lisa has a massive family, she's one of 10. We took about half of them and their kids and we all crammed into this uh, condo. And every morning about six before little kids were running around, Um, I'd go out on the porch, and I would read Acts, and I'd study Acts, and it was beautiful. And this was my view. You want to come with me? Wouldn't you come? It's a beautiful desert road with weeds. I could see it. It was lovely, okay? This is a small perspective. It is something I looked at as I walked around. But this isn't the grand perspective. You wouldn't make a decision and say, yeah, we'll go with you. That sounds great. It sounds great, Nick. But if you look at the whole thing, it's an amazing view as you look up and you see the bay on one side and the ocean on the other. And they sit there and listen to the waves and marvel in the awe of who God is. But if I stood and just leaned over the balcony and said, what a desert world. It's just, I'm thirsty. I'm alone. But you open your eyes and you say, God, you're in control. You have got your hands on all of this. And I trust you because you've shown yourself faithful and gracious to me. So in Acts 6, at the end of Acts 6 and into Acts 7, we look at the life of Stephen. We see how he responds to the world around him and how others who claim their devotion to God respond to their worlds being shifted. So Stephen's ministry was not very long it was powerful, but not very long. Am I still in the light? I feel like I'm in the dark. Is that, the, is that it? Okay. Um, I can still see, it's fine. Um, so his ministry wasn't very long, but it seemed like it was going to be because it started so effectively. I, it says in, at the end of six in verse eight, It says, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Great wonders and signs. There was no question that he was on the side of God. He was doing these things, and he was making progress. If it was our day, he probably was already filling a stadium. People were like, I got to hear what this guy has to say. I got to hear what's happening. It's working. And so this group of men from a synagogue called uh, Freedmen, they were former slaves, um, they started to rise up and argue against Stephen. And, you, and let's be real honest that if you came out of slavery and you kind of found normalcy and all of a sudden it's getting shook up, it might be hard for you to say, okay, new guy, come on. It might be hard. Okay? But they are, say they're following God and they move against the very law that they hold up by saying they, um, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit for which he was speaking. He was ordained and anointed by God, and he was going out, and the church is growing underneath him. So they secretly induced men, which also would translate as bribed, to say they had heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And see, Stephen had seen this played out before. Right, This was dangerous. So they pull him in front of the Sanhedrin, and he knows my life is on the line at this point. I've been slandered, these people. I was doing what I was supposed to do. And they pull me in front, and they ask him a simple question. The high priest says, is that true? You blasphemed Moses and God? That's high crimes around here. Scary. What do you say when your life is being threatened in those moments, and it's totally false. You're being set up. It's difficult. So Stephen, with God's grace and spirit guiding him, crafts this message. And this would be the third time that this body of people had heard the gospel preached, two times by Peter and now by Stephen. And he lays out not what seems logical to me, But it does defend him, but it also tells them, hey, this is God who's doing these things through me. So he begins, we're going to summarize this. We're going to move through it at a decent rate. Please go back and read it, because we could spend a lot of time on any individual section. But he begins to lay out the history of his people. He says, Abraham, God called Abraham out of Mesopotamia. Abraham stalled out a couple times, but God said, come on, let's keep going. I got a plan, right? Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has these sons, and they're going to be the, the patriarchs, these tribes. It's going to be great. But what happens inside of that? Of these sons, there's one that stuck out. Joseph was... Favored and dad liked him, and all this, and they could not handle it. These are the guys who are supposed to be leading us, and they're just lost in their jealousy over this guy. So they're like, We're gonna kill him. Our own blood. Well, we'll sell him. That'll be good enough. He'll be out of our way. They tried to get in the way of what God wanted to do, but you can't do that. You're swimming against the tide. You ain't gonna make it. God is gonna do what He wants to do. So God lifts him up to the highest places of authority. And when famine struck the land and they were starving, his brothers come to him not knowing who they're going to be begging from. And God has his way, saves his people through this blessing, through this prophet. Once again, God's going to get his way. He is in control. We get to be on his side or we don't. Stephen shares this part of the story, and he even starts by saying, hey, friends, my fathers, to say, hey, I'm one of you. I'm with you guys. We've grown up out of the same tradition. But that tradition is us rebelling against the Lord and him doing what he needs to do anyway, and he's so graceful to us. We just abuse and abuse, and he pours out his grace and mercy upon us. He also tells this story because this is the beginning of the church. And so in this crowd is a bunch of new believers, Gentiles, who don't know all this stuff. So he's saying, let's take the opportunity. Let me tell you how we've jacked up a lot of this. That's a cross phrase, jacked up, if you've never heard that before. Right? Our effort to move God away from his purpose will fail. He is in control. He drives the message home. Then he moves on, he says, okay, we wanna talk about Moses. You say, I've been blaspheming Moses. Moses was born, he was beautiful. You know when he was born? There was no hope. It was in darkness. It was a time of great darkness, and then there was light. Okay, I'm good, good, thank you. This one needs some comic relief, so I appreciate it. Right, Joseph was gone. The new king didn't remember all the good things that he had done for him. And so he put the hammer down on their people and said, we're going to kill all these kids because they're out of control. There's too many of them, all this stuff. And in the midst of that, they have no control. Moses is born. Stephen calls him beautiful. And you know the story. It's a miraculous story. Born Hebrew, raised as a a prince of Egypt in unbelievable circumstances. And then his time comes and he goes to free his people and they reject him. Move along, finally they follow him and honestly the circumstances are crazy as you know with plagues and all these other things. They follow him, they see the most miraculous things they've ever seen. Walking through oceans, all of these plagues. They're getting fed every day and provided for and they complain about it. God's grace poured out over and over and over again like, ah, let's just go back and be slaves. Even to the point of making false gods. As Moses brings down the law, they're polishing up the golden calf. Because once again, the story hadn't changed it that much. Still, we're so focused on our own lives and saying, this is about my comfort. I couldn't see the grand scheme and even everything provided for and I still want to fight against it. So he continues to lay out this history. I wouldn't blaspheme Moses. Moses was a great gift of God. Why would I do that? He doesn't say that, but he says it without saying it. It's implied. This was an amazing gift. I wouldn't do that. Then he begins to talk about the tabernacle. This is where he starts leaning in on them a little bit. He says, our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, which God himself instructed them to build. But it seems ever since you've been trying to contain God to a building. Everywhere you go, you're trying to go, oh yeah, this is the part of my life that you're in. So David was blessed. Um, God favored him. He said, hey, let me build you you a tabernacle. He didn't get to it, but Solomon did. And now you treasure this place so much more than you treasure God. And I love this place. I think there's some great things about it. But God dwells in you, each one of you. You are his temple. And see, culturally, they were viewing the temple and they were saying, I'll go in there. I'll get my sins forgiven. I'll do this. And that is the effect, the extent on my life. I will go do this other thing. God was compartmentalized to this one day, this one building, but had nothing to do. He would not be confined to a building. He says to them, do not, do not forget the words of the prophet. And anytime they say the prophet, they're speaking of Isaiah. Heaven is my throne room. I rest my feet on earth. So what kind of house will you build me, says God, where I can get away and relax? It's already built. I built it. God is in control. He is the one saying, come on, come with me. You want to have purpose? You want to understand, have real meaning to your life? You don't want to get to the end and be like, what did I waste all this on? Live for the sake of the kingdom. <clears throat> we can keep trying and trying to move against the Lord, but it's useless. Francis Chan talks about the fear of the Lord like um, he's a surfer, and he compares it to waves. And he talks tells a story about surfing waves he shouldn't have been surfing, basically because of peer pressure with some guys who are much more advanced than him, and him getting pummeled over and sucked out, and all he could do was just say, I hope my head goes above water at some point, because I have no idea which way is up or whatever. The fear of the Lord is important. It's not that we walk around cowering, but we understand that control. I was thinking about Stephen. As he stands there in fear of his life, knowing his life is on the line, I thought about My life's not on the line, but I'm preparing a message for you. And generally, when I like, when I prepare a message, I think, how do you end it? What do you leave them with? Something to like, they leave and they say, I want to think about that some more. Or I want to read about that a little bit more. Or, you know, I'm inspired as I go to lunch or whatever it is. Okay. And then I also was thinking, well, this is also a trial. So I started thinking through like movies, like trial movies, and like the great last speech, like my cousin Vinny, Right. And it's like the rear differential, positive traction, something, whatever she said. I don't know about cars. And, and then they win the case, right? Or a few good men. And he says, uh, you know, I, you, well, I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. I want the truth. Right? It's this moment. And so you think he's going to set him up. And he's going to say, see, innocent. That's not what he does. This is how he ends his message verse 51 you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the holy spirit you are doing just as your fathers did notice in the beginning he said our fathers and now he says your fathers Which one, of the pro- which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who were previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it." Probably didn't persuade the jury, but he spoke truth in this time of great importance because he understood. God was doing something in and all around him, and all he could do was speak the truth that was laid out in front of him. You say you love the law. That's why I'm standing here, because I spoke bad about Moses. You don't even keep it. You're murdering me right now. You murdered the one you've been waiting for. Speaking the truth for the sake of the kingdom. I think there's a couple of applications we can take when we look at Stephen's message. Number one, proclaim God's mercy to people whenever possible. This is the most important thing in the world, and we have so much going on, we can forget about that. (laughs) That the most important thing that people can know is that the Lord loves you and he wants you to be in eternity with him. And he paid all the price, made all the way to do it. And for some reason, that makes us nervous. And just like the prompting I had as I stood at the front of the stage um, 10 years ago, and I said, oh, I'm not gonna, God's not gonna force you, but you wanna be part of what he's doing? Be obedient to that prompting that is pushing you forward to say, this could cost me. This could cost me some reputation. It could make me feel foolish. Maybe, but it also could save a life. It could change a family. It is the most important thing. And so in this time, even though they'd heard it two other times, this is the third time they've heard it and it's going to cost him everything. He said, know this, you killed the one who came here to save you. You're doing the same thing you've done over and over again. But God is gracious. The story shows it. He lays it out over and over again. He is a gracious, gracious God, and a patient one. I'm gonna read you this quote from A.W. Tozer. "The, The reason God has not yet sent judgment upon this earth is not to give the inhabitants the, I'm sorry, is to give the inhabitants the time and opportunity to repent of their sins. It is an awesome, terrifying act. Deal with your sin now or your sin will deal with you later. So, the smallest of analogies I can make, there uh, Before there was a guy who went to this church for a while. His name was Antonio Davis. He lives in California now. He played in the NBA. He was 6'10", a giant man. If we were playing two-on-two basketball, who'd you pick? Me. Who's kind of tall? Super spry. Um... <laughs> flexible, fast, or Antonio, okay? You pick the winning team. You go, you just hand it to him and nobody's going to stop him here, right? He's going to do what he wants to. You pick the winning team. Proclaim the gospel. Give people an opportunity. A lot of people around here have heard it's okay if they hear again. It's okay if you feel foolish. It matters more than that. And if it costs you something, as I probably believed incorrectly it might for me in the beginning. That's okay. The cost is far more greater on the other side. The other thing I want to take from his message is don't use grace as an excuse to sin. These, the history of the people that he's speaking to was an enormous amount of grace poured out to them and an enormous amount of abuse as a a response. And this is not new, it's written all over the Bible. We do it now. Paul would say, I don't, why should I go on sinning so that grace can abound? Of course not, right? But also in Jude, it says, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into a licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. They took that grace and said, oh, this is our license to do whatever we want. And we all have that tendency because of our selfishness and we're wanting to do things and we believe we know better. But God deserves so much more than that. Titus 2, 11 through 12 says, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age. The grace extended to you should provoke us towards Righteousness not towards sin, but in our brokenness and our denial to view God as the most important thing, we take advantage like a spoiled, rich child. Born into the riches of grace, say, what does it matter in how I live? Third, guard yourself that worship does not become an act that we don't just walk into the temple and we do the thing we're supposed to do. And then we walk out and we pretend it's meaningful. God cares about your heart. And this is so tricky at any time in history, but now worship is a market and you can listen to it on the radio and you love this song. And then three weeks later you hate that song because we're not engaged with the direction of that song. We're engaged with, I don't know how it makes us feel. It feels good. And I, pray and I uh, do those things here, but then I walk out and my life looks totally different. If I'm the temple of God, I must live consistently with the God who inhabits me. Would have been way too long for me to talk about that the whole time, but we'll move along. Imitate Stephen. Stephen in in these moments had had to be afraid. You think back to these prayers for boldness and, and things like that in the early days of the church. Had to be afraid. He had seen this play out. He was being set up. But he could not fear the consequences of what these men would do to him over the plan of who what God called him to be. He could not lie. He could not be somebody else. He had to be truthful to who the Lord was calling him to be in that moment. He was going to honor God with even the last moments of his life. And I think why I shared that story in the very beginning is it was compromised for me. It hurt me, but I needed God to hurt me a little bit for me to understand. Say, so if you're gonna stand up there for decades or if I take your life tomorrow, I need you to understand that this is the most important. Do not compromise. And I think about how hard it is when you've built something big. These pastors who build these churches and now there's 10,000 people there and you feel conviction to preach something that might clear the room. Do you compromise? How difficult is it to just say, Well, I won't say anything against that, but I'm going to walk around it. It becomes this disobedience that's just trying to maintain. But we do it, we do it for the sake of our family, we are the sake of the plans that we have. It can become a problem. If we don't keep him in our sights, he is the most important. So after Stephen delivers this final conclusion to his message. They're very angry. He looks to heaven. He proclaims that he sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father. It says in 58, says, when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Having said this, he fell asleep. Obedience. Not the result I'm sure Stephen was looking for. But as we read this, And we see these people enraged and saying, I'm going to take control. So we're going to spread these lies. We're going to put him up in front of these people and they're going to take care of it. And he won't be our problem anymore. God works out all of these crazy lines into a straight line towards his kingdom. And you see this line that says, the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Young man here means man in his prime. He stood there as a representative of the Sanhedrin. He approved of what was happening. He oversaw it. And this man becomes the evidence that God heard the prayer of Stephen at the end and says, please don't hold this against them because of this Saul becomes Paul, writes us the New Testament, takes these missionary journeys all over, strapped to prison cells, proclaiming the goodness of God when his job was to murder and abuse these people who were disrupting them previously. They might have thought they won in a moment. But God was gracious. God was moving forward. And we look back at Stephen in just this overwhelming faith and focus and saying, God, it's okay. I, thought, I mean, when those days were going great, he probably thought, this is awesome. I'm moving in power and all of this. Who knows what God will use me for next? And then when it became evident, okay, I got to see it. It doesn't make it any less difficult. But it does allow you to know I was on the winning team. I was with the Lord. He was there with me, and he comforted me in the end as Jesus looks down over him. And just like Jesus at his death, he says, don't hold this against them. So how does this provoke you today? In what places right now in your life do you feel like God is absent? Maybe you have a relationship struggle between your spouse or your whoever, your boss. Maybe you have a health struggle and you feel like God is absent. My prayer today is that each one of us in this time after where we're gonna pray, we can take communion, as so we'd say, God, would you show me what you're doing in this moment? Just make me in tune with you, or if I can't understand it, that's okay, but give me some comfort in there because I, I do wanna understand that you're in control because this feels out of control. But God, I do believe that you are good and gracious. You've shown us over and over and over again. And most of you sit here because of the grace of God. And you come in here and you're like, I need to come in and honor the Lord because I shouldn't be here. There was plenty of mistakes where God said, come on, come on, let's go. Come on, you know better. Come on, fall deeply in love with the Lord today. Allow him to speak to you. Allow your eyesight to be opened to his control. Because he does love you. He wants the best for you. He wants to grow you up. He wants to transform you. My prayer is that you dive into this scripture at some point here soon and consider the boldness of Stephen to surrender to the control of the Lord the sovereignty of God.